0: The Apostle Paul writes glorious words about the gospel in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. There's nothing more powerful in all the world than the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not everybody thinks that. In fact, there's somebody who uh, I've interacted with a number of times, shared the gospel with a number of times, maybe somebody you have shared the gospel with, somebody in our community. And um, recently I was talking to him, and we're going to just call him Ben. But recently I was, it's not his real name, I was talking to him, and when our faith came up, Ben simply said this, I don't care what you say, all that born-again stuff is nonsense. Now, he used a little more colorful language than that, but that's, that's basically what Ben had to say. And the question uh, that we have as we come to this, uh, for each of us to consider in our own hearts, is, um, do, you think, do you think that maybe Ben is right? Is there, is there a part of you that may think that what Ben is saying is true. The reality is is that many unbelievers don't believe the gospel because they don't think that Christians believe it. Many unbelievers don't believe the gospel because they don't think Christians really believe the gospel. Well, we begin with a typical greeting in the text before us. And we notice in verse 1, it says, Paul, Sylvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Gr- grace would be kind of a Greek, more Greek greeting. Peace would be a more Jewish reading. We know that there are both Greeks and Jews in the church. But truly, the way that we can have peace with God is through God's grace, as a gift of God's grace. And so you see both of these themes filling up the the background of everything that that Paul speaks about. How is it that we can be reconciled to God? How is it that we can have peace with God? Well, it's only through God's grace that that is possible. Just in terms of the background of the story, we find it in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And it tells us how Paul went to, Paul and, and Silas, Silvanus, went to this city, Thessalonica, after they had left Philippi. Philippi was a place where God had done an extraordinary work. You can read about that in the book of Acts. People came to know the Lord, but it was a difficult time, a difficult work for Paul. And for Silas, as they were beaten in the city, they were sent out of the city. It was a very, very difficult experience there. And then they ended up in this city of Thessalonica, and while they were there, they preached the gospel, obviously by grace. Paul says it in chapter 2, verse 2. They preached it with boldness. Now, Thessalonica was a strategic city. It was the capital of the province of Macedonia. It was a flourishing commercial center. It was a harbor town uh, along a major trade route called the Via Ignatia. And Paul went there, he chose to go into that city because it was a strategic city. Paul always thought strategically. He, he, uh, he understood that if, if he could have a gospel presence in the city of uh, Thessalonica, that it would, the gospel would go from that city to all the world, either through, on ships or along the trade routes that surrounded the city. And so he wanted to bring the gospel to that place so that it would spread from there. Unfortunately, while he was there, there was great upheaval in the city. He went to the synagogue as was his custom. He preached the gospel on three consecutive Sabbaths. People came to know the Lord. There were Jews who came to know the Lord. There were Godfears. Godfears were Gentiles who would worship the Lord, but they didn't want to submit themselves to the rite of circumcision, so they never fully con- converted to Judaism. But they, but they were they were worshippers of the Lord. Some of the people who are Godfears came to the Lord. Greeks came to the Lord, and also well-known women. Some people think, some scholars think with those well-known women that perhaps they had a lot of wealth and maybe a lot of wealth left the synagogue because Paul preached the gospel and people were coming into Christ, joining the church. And so this perhaps prompted jealousy by the religious leaders in the city. And so some pretty awful charges were made against Paul and Silas. Actually, the same charges that were made against them were made against Jesus and so uh, they were taken into custody. They had to eventually post bail. And the way it worked in, in the ancient cities, or at least in this city, scholars think, uh, Paul posted bail, Silas posted bail. They left the city. And that was really a promise that they would not come back. You know, when, when we post bail in our culture, it's, it's as a promise that we will show up on the day of our, our court date. In that day when you posted bail, it was a promise that you would not come back they didn't want Paul and Silas back in the city Paul and Silas posted bail they left the city but if they ever came back to the city it would mean that they would have to stand trial for the charges that were made against them that they were uh, kind of putting forth an alternate king other than Caesar and so Paul and Silas left the city but there was there was a great fear for Paul because these were brand new Christians they had only known the Lord for a short period of time how would, they, how would they withstand this time of persecution that they were undergoing? The same kind of persecution that, that uh, Paul went through. Uh, and, but they, they were forced to live there. How, are they, how would they withstand it? And so Paul is praying for them fervently. And it's important. This is an important principle for us to remember. That when we go through the course of our life, we need to be praying for each other. And we need other people to be praying for us. This is a principle that we see. Paul was constantly in prayer for them because he understood what was, what, was, what they were up against in the city. And so eventually he sends Timothy to the city and he gets a good report. And once he hears that good report, he is so relieved. He is so thankful to God for what he's done that they are still walking with the Lord even though they had only been followers for a short period of time and they lost the one who might teach them doctrine, theology, ground them in their faith, the Apostle Paul, Silas, etc. And so uh, uh, Paul now writes to them to explain why they are continuing on in their faith. Well, first of all, he explains to them uh, that he he encourages them in their faith, and we notice that in verses 2 and 3. He spells out the outward effects of the Christian life. He shows us the outward effects of the Christian life. If we are Christians... If we truly have a relationship with the Lord, there ought to be certain things, certain, a certain way of life that accompanies this relationship with God that we have. Now, there are a lot of Christian stereotypes out there, aren't there? Uh, have you ever heard uh, that Christians all think that they're perfect? Ever hear that one? Or um, Christians are all judgmental? Or uh, Christians are all hypocrites? That's the most popular one, right? Um, Christians don't like having fun. Christians are closed-minded. There are all kinds of stereotypes about what the Christian life is like, but none of them could be further than the biblical picture of what the Christian ought to be, what the Christian is like. In fact, he says in um, verse 3, he mentions uh, three things about the, the evidences of their, of, their, of their faith, their genuine faith. He says, Your work of faith your labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So he gives us three radical qualities that ought to come to the fore in the life of a person who knows Jesus. You know Jesus, these qualities in radical measure ought to be part of your life, ought to be part of my life. The first radical quality, he says, is your work of faith. And what he meant by that was the work of their life that flows out of their faith. That's how the, the construction is in the language. That actually each of the, the, thing, the things that we'll notice, their work, their labor, their steadfastness, all flows out of another quality that's in their life. And so here we notice that, that uh, one of the, the marks of a Christian is the work that flows out of their faith. Now we live in a world where we kind of compartmentalize everything. We will say, here's my church life over here, here's my work life, here's my family life. And very often, our, our life, our, our church life doesn't really intersect with our work life. It doesn't really intersect with our family life. It doesn't necessarily intersect with, with uh, the, the, the commitments that we make le- in our leisure life. And so we just kind of keep them all separated. But that's not the biblical picture of what real faith is. In Scripture, faith is part of every part of our life. In Scripture, it decompartmentalizes these things. If you had faith, then it meant that it would cause you to to act in a certain way. I remember when I was in high school, there were some really wild kids. I mean radical, wild, crazy kids. You know, when me and my friends would, would go out and we would go maybe have a burger, have fun, um, maybe go and, I don't know, play basketball, you know what they would do, these wild kids? They would stay home, they'd do their homework. They would, um, when, when they had an assignment, they would write it down. I thought that was so strange. I mean, who does homework? I remember thinking, like, why would you, you know, just as long as you throw something together... Right, don't kids, my kids, please don't listen to what I'm saying. But, you know, when, you know, who, who, who would, who would like spend all that time uh, working through school, and, and when you, could, when there's so much fun to be had. And then I remember it, it's senior year, and it's time to apply for colleges. Well, their experience was very different than my experience at that point, point. and that's because they had, they had faith in a process. They believed that if they worked hard in school, they believed if they did their homework, they believed that if they applied themselves, that when it was time for the next thing in their life to take place, they would be ready for it. They would be ready to go. And in my heart, I just thought, well, I'll just wait until the time comes. I'm not going to worry about it. I'm going to enjoy myself now. Well, that's what faith does. When we believe something, it's going to actually produce results in our life that is going to impact what we do. It's going to impact the way that we live, and that's exactly what happened to them. We notice that they had, they had work in their life for the Lord, but it had flowed from their faith. And so, in the Bible, there's never a separation between our faith and our life. We have a picture of this. James describes it well. Now, we understand that that our works can't save us. That God never accepts us on the basis of our work. It's only on the basis of Christ's work that he, ex- he, he accepts us. We are, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness. That's why Christians can't be self-righteous. The only righteousness we have is Jesus' righteousness, and that humbles us. But if we have this relationship, if we enter into that relationship with Christ through faith, It ought to produce tangible things that make us recognizable to the world around us. Notice what James chapter 2 verses 14 to 17 says. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so even though we are not saved by our works, our faith, we're saved by faith. Our faith produces works in our lives if we really believe what we say we believe, then it will impact the way that we live. There's a a famous atheist philosopher who, uh, when discussing Christianity, said the reason why uh, I won't embrace Christianity isn't for a lot of the reasons why people think I wouldn't embrace Christianity. He said the reason why is because I don't really think that Christians believe what they say they believe. He said if Christians really believe that if People don't know Christ. If That means if they don't know Christ, they're going to spend eternity in hell, eternity separated from God. He said, I would, I would think that if they truly believe that, they'd be willing to crawl over broken glass to spread the gospel to someone who's never heard it. It's an interesting argument, isn't it? He's pointing out, what is he pointing out? That though we have faith... Our faith often lacks the works that accompany that faith. Something is missing. Something is missing. There's radical quality, number one, work, your your work of faith. The second radical quality that Paul saw in their lives was their labor of love. Now, their labor flowed again from their love for Christ, their love for others, uh, and this word for labor is more intensive than the word works. Uh, it refers to burdensome toil. It refers to burdensome toil. Paul uses the word in Second uh, Corinthians uh, eleven twenty-four to 28 to describe the whippings, the beatings, the stonings, the shipwrecks, the danger, the sleepless nights, the hunger, the thirst, the exposure to cold that he suffered in his service to Christ. Those were his labors, those were his toil, that was his toil, and that's what the people of Thessalonica were going through. the Christians were going through that. Paul has to leave. Silas has to leave. Their teachers have to leave. And now they go, and, and their whole world has changed. They're, they're now isolated from their family, they're isolated from their friends. probably their businesses are affected, all because somebody came into town and he shared the gospel of Jesus, and everything radically changed in their life, and they started living it, they believed it, and, and, and everything changed. And, and, and so Paul describes their situation as, as a time. Of, of, of labor, a labor that came from love. The, the reason why they endured these things is because they had this deep love for Christ, and he was explaining that to them. Now, um, there's an old joke. If, if the continuance of humanity depended upon men giving birth to children, we would have been extinct long ago. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I <laughs> heard an amen from one of our mothers. Yeah, it's really amazing. You, you moms are incredible. I mean, you have to. It's just so, so incredible. It's hard for us men to fathom that. Um, I remember, I remember when um, when Faith was giving birth to our first one, our first boy. She was saying to herself, she was saying out loud, she didn't know that she was saying it. Remember we talked about uh, in Psalm 1 a few weeks ago, muttering, you're, you're, you're actually, your lips are moving but your, your mind because your, your mind is full of what you're thinking, but you don't know that you're actually saying it. And uh, she was saying, why did I get myself into this? Why did I? This is when the labor was starting. When we got to the hospital, she actually tried to leave, somehow believing that by leaving it would just make everything stop. Then, then finally, finally, uh, she gives birth, and I'm wondering to myself whether there will ever be a, another Smith born in our family, and then within probably a few hours, maybe it was a day or two, she's already thinking about the next child. That's what you call a labor of love, literally. <laughs> that, that's, 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 what, that's what this picture is. This is the natural outflow of a relationship with God. There will be a labor of love. We will, we will toil. We will toil for the Lord because because there's such a deep love for the Lord that it, it motivates us on that level where it will be evident all of our life. You see, you can't mail it in and be a Christian. If we're a genuine Christian, we will have such a burden that we will desire to toil for Him. The third thing we notice. The third radical quality that we notice as, 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 uh, as an outward effect of the gospel in a Christian's life is the steadfastness of our hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 3. And just as the other ones, our steadfastness, our endurance in our Christian life, what, what holds us in our Christian life is that hope for that future day when we will see Jesus. We know that from the book, the, the Christians look forward to the day when the Lord would return. That was their hope. They, they wanted to see Jesus. They look forward to that day. And, and on the flip side, there is, there, there there's well, on the one side, there's nothing so motivating for us to continue on to keep going than hope. And there is nothing so demoralizing and debilitating as when we leave all sense, lose all sense of hope. There's a story that I once heard about... Uh, an evil thing that the one of the evil things, one of the many evil things that the Nazis perpetrated against Jewish people during the Holocaust in the concentration camps, but there's one story of their just particular cruelty. On one occasion they, they brought a whole group of Jewish people out to a some kind of workyard, and in the workyard was this massive pile of huge stones. And these Nazi guards said to the people, what we'd like you to do is we would like you to take these stones and we want you to move them to the other side of the yard. And it was a major undertaking. It took all day. It sapped all of their strength. But they were able to work together and move all the rocks, all the boulders, whatever they were, to the other end of the yard. And at the end of the day, they were completely exhausted. But there was a sense at least of accomplishment. There was a sense, at least, in which they felt like there was a purpose in what they were doing. And so when they went to bed that night, they slept well. Well, the next morning, they get them up. They bring them out to the yard. They look at the pile that they had moved the day before. And then the guard said to them, We want you to take those rocks, and we want you to move them to the other side, back back to where they were the day before in the yard. They were confused about this. They didn't know why they were doing it. But then they picked up the rocks, they worked all day, they did what they were supposed to do. They moved the rocks to the previous spot. The same thing, they went to bed, they woke up the next morning very, very early, and you know what they did? They said, We want you to move the rocks to the same place they were yesterday. And day after day, they had to move the rocks back and forth. And it completely crushed their spirits and it broke their will because they realized in the things that they were doing, there was no purpose. You know, if we as people just stop to think about it for a moment. If there is no Christ, if there is no afterlife, then there is no purpose. Think about that for a second. Sometimes we live as if there's no eternity, and so that justifies, that justifies our actions. We live as if there's not going to be a final judgment that justifies our actions. But we have a hard time really living on that level. I I haven't been to too many funerals where a person stood up and said, well, you know, person died. We're never going to see him again. It really doesn't matter what they did because we're going to die too and nobody's going to remember us either. So there's really no point to this whole exercise. You ever hear something like that? It'd have to be an awfully depressing funeral if you heard anything like that. But that's the reality of a worldview without Christ. It's like working in a, in a prison yard, moving rocks back and forth for no purpose throughout the whole course of our life, because when we get to the end of it, we die, we won't remember anything that happened to us, and the people that we loved or the people that we were at war with, they're going to die, and they're not going to remember anything or anyone. And, and the reality is, is that nothing that we will do will have any lasting value or purpose. Life without Christ is hopeless. But what drove these, what drove these uh, Christians in, in Thessalonica? What 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 drove them? It was the knowledge that one day they would see Christ. And and uh, just think about that for a minute. Have you, in your sanctified imagination, ever thought of, thought to yourself, what will it be like? To one day see Jesus Christ. Well, there's a song about it. I can only imagine. We used to sing it a lot. Um, will we dance in His presence? Will we fall down at His feet? Will we hold on to Him? Will you be like somebody? Do you, do you imagine yourself somebody in the background and just kind of, kind of uh, wonder if He notices you? Uh, it, it's, it's hard to imagine. But for these people, the reality of Jesus coming was so real that it reshaped everything that they did and it reshaped every decision that they made. So even though they were isolated from everything that they knew before, they were good with it because they understood where they were going and they understood how to get there. And so that hope sustained them. And the question is, do you have that kind of hope that sustains you, that drives you in your life? We have uh, Jim Elliott. He was the Plymouth Brethren missionary to Ecuador, and he lost his life. But this is this is what he said. This is a famous line that motivated missionaries for for uh, the latter part of the 20th century, at least until today. Still, he said, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose." That's the hope that we have in Christ. What will be like when you see Jesus? Do you let that motivate you, permeate your life? Well, those are the outward evidences of their faith. But Paul describes the inward work of God that led to those outward evidences in verses four and five. You know, some people read this and they think it's strange that God, or that, that Paul thanks God for the life of these Thessalonian believers. But... Um, it really makes sense because they don't deserve any of the credit for any of the things that are happening in their life. The reason Paul gives thanks to the Lord for what's happening in their life is because God did the work that started it to begin with. And so he says in verse four, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you. What an amazing statement. He has chosen you. Sometimes you know, in, in one sense, you know, we, God has given us free will. There's a sense in which we have chosen Him, but there's a far greater sense in which He has chosen us. In fact, uh, it tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says this He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. This is how He did it. He did this in love, He did this by grace. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Do do you know that you were known by God before you were even born? He knew everything about you before the world was even created. He knew that you would belong to him. We have a man in the church who, who came to know the Lord after working and working and working. He was trying to gain God's affection, trying to gain God's favor, and then... And then uh, Steve Seema shared in one of his classes that actually, no, it's uh, God had loved him first. And he said, as soon as he realized that, he began to cry. I mean, I have a father in heaven who knew me first, who loved me. You mean, I don't have to try to work to gain his love. He loved me already, and he wept, and he wept, and he wept, and he wept after he left church. It, it radically changed his life. And that's when he believes that the new birth took place within him. He came to this realization, this glorious realization that God chose him. We see this picture of God, God's choice all the way through Scripture and the way that he works. And, and, a, a, and a book that, that beautifully illustrates it is the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. In that book we notice that uh, Abraham, the great patriarch of the people of God, Abraham chose his son Ishmael, but God chose his son Isaac. And then when it was time for Isaac to choose which of his sons was to receive the blessing well he wanted Isaac to get the I mean he wanted uh, he wanted Esau to get the blessing but God chose his son Jacob. And then when it was time for Jacob Jacob desired that his son Joseph get the blessing but who did God choose? God choose, chose a different son, the son Judah from whom the Messiah would come. And so God's choice is very often different than man's choice. But I want you to know that there is a great joy, there's a great security and understanding that if we are in Christ, what it means is that this was no surprise to God, it was his plan from the beginning, that the moment that you were born, you were marked out for him, and one day you came to him because of his marvelous grace entered your life. He opened your heart and you believed. It's this beautiful picture. And so Paul Paul goes back and explains to them, the reason why you have this, this love for God, the reason why you are willing to live uh, the faith that you pro- profess, the reason why you have such steadfastness in your life is because I did a work in you. I did an internal work in you. I chose you to be my own and I rescued you and I saved you and I did it all myself. Jesus says this in John 15, 16. This is the New Living Translation. It says this. He said this to his disciples. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit. This is God's work. Well, um, what, are the, what are these internal marks of the Holy Spirit that become evident in our lives when we enter into a relationship with the Lord. Well, we, we notice this in verse 5. He says this, Our gospel came to you not only in word, and by the way, the gospel is, is the good news that Jesus Christ came to reconcile lost people to God. That's the good news. That's the gospel. Believe the gospel. Trust the gospel. That's what God calls us to do. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction And so, we notice here just a few marks, a few marks of what it looks like when the gospel comes into a person's heart and life. Number one, the gospel doesn't just come in words, but it comes in power. Now, a lot of people hear the gospel words. We hear that the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to reconcile sinful people to himself, and we can just let that go over our head. Other people hear that and say, oh, me? You love me? Some people, that gospel message comes with power. Other people, it doesn't come with power. This idea is that there's a regenerating work that God does in the life of a person who embraces the gospel. There's lots of debate about what he means by power here. Some people think that what he meant by this is external miracles. But if you read the narrative in Acts chapter 17, you don't see any of those kinds of external miraculous things that accompany it. Now, what Paul is referring to is the same kind of power that he talked about in Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When he talks about this power of the gospel, what he's saying is, is that something explosive, happened within those Thessalonian believers that changed their life, that blew apart their, their whole understanding of the entire world, their understanding of who they were, and it gave them a completely different understanding of everything. You see, when we're born into this world, we're born, uh, we're, we're born once physically, but we're dead to God. God. And the the beauty of the new birth is that by the power of the gospel, God uh, regenerates our hearts, he makes our hearts alive so that when we hear the message, we we believe it and it changes us from the inside out. It's It's this powerful thing that cannot be adequately described unless you've experienced it. Unless you've experienced it. It cannot be earned, it cannot be bought, it cannot come by any other means, God must do it. They had experienced the power of the gospel in their life. Remember hearing the story of of Carl Henry, arguably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, arguably, for sure. Um, Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson was an aide to, he was actually the legal counsel for Richard Nixon. He went to jail during Watergate. Chuck Colson became a Christian in prison, wrote the book, Born Again... Started the ministry Prison Fellowship after that. He did did tremendous work among people incarcerated throughout the world. Just an outstanding figure, a brilliant mind, great writer. But he said about Carl Henry, he said, I've never stood in the presence of anyone who was Carl Henry's equal. I was fortunate enough to have him as a professor. And I remember him sharing with us his testimony, how he came to know the Lord. He was a 20-year-old editor of a New York newspaper. He was possibly the youngest editor of a newspaper in the entire United States and then in such a place as New York City, the hub of the news industry. He was remarkable. They called him the boy wonder of New York. But he had a friend who was an evangelist and one day this friend who was an evangelist decided to share the gospel with him. His career was going places, but he said they were driving around in his beat up Dodge All day long and they were talking about the gospel and finally at the end of that conversation he knelt down in the back of his car and he became a follower of Jesus Christ and he said I couldn't at that moment have told you the first thing about Christ. He said but one thing I knew if God called me to go to China the next day I would have gone in an instant. This is this explosive thing that happened that took hold of his heart and changed everything about him. The moment that the, the gospel became alive, the power of the gospel burned in his heart. And that's what happens in the life of a person who has changed the way these Thessalonian believers were changed. We notice that they received the Holy Spirit in five. What are the marks of the Holy Spirit in a believer's life? Jesus tells us in John sixteen eight. he says this, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. See, one of the marks of a person who has come to know the Lord truly is that there will be this great sense of sin in their life, this great burden of sin in this life, and that the only release of this burden is to go to the cross and, and, and run to Christ. And then when we experience it, we are free. We experience the freedom that he alone can give. My question for you is whether or not you've experienced that release, that experience from that burden. That's a mark of the Holy Spirit. They had this desire to live holy lives as a result of it. And not only that, he says, we receive the gospel with full conviction. This word uh, is used in Hebrews to refer to assurance of faith. See, it tells us that they've rested on Christ. The mark of the, the person who has experienced this assurance, this pardon. Has a sense? It tells us in Hebrews ten twenty two that their hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and so that that's what happens when we come to know the Lord. We hear the gospel. It didn't just. He says it didn't just come with words. It came with power, but it did come with words. We hear the gospel. God moves in our hearts. He gives us the Holy Spirit. And then, all, then as we cast our burdens upon Him, He takes it away. So far as the east is from the west, so far have I removed your sins from you, taking our sins and throw them into the depths of the sea, so that they'll never be uh, used against us again. That is the that is the amazing promise of the gospel. When we experience it, when we experience this freedom from sin that only He can give, I can't tell you even even as we go through the Christian life. I want you to know there are going to be times where you're going to be convicted of sin. Holy Spirit is going to do that can't tell you how many times i don't know if this is just me or if it happens to you but sometimes i'll be in here and we'll be worshiping together and all of a sudden god will bring to mind all kinds of sin in my life that i didn't even realize he'll convict me in the moment as we are worshiping and i'm confessing it as we're worshiping has ever happened to you That's what the Holy Spirit does. He he convicts us of our sin, and in an instant, he changes us. And and that's a mark of his work in his life. But the beauty is is that when when we confess our sin to him, when we turn to him in faith, and that initial turning to him in faith when we were born again, all of our sin is removed. And then over the course of our life, as we feel conviction of sin we go to him and we confess it to him and then we claim the promise that he gives us in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you experienced that new birth? Have you experienced that new life that only Jesus can give? There's nothing more wonderful. If you turn to him, if you take that burden that you're struggling with, he'll save you. He'll rescue you. He'll give you new life just want to mention um, a few applications, few points of applications as a result of this, this section. Number one, we must steer clear of the temptation to live nominal Christian lives. You know, it's easy for our faith to become very, very familiar to us. But we have to remember that our faith is not a check-off-the-box religion. You see, what, what fuels our life is this passion for Christ, it's this love for Christ, it's this faith in Christ, it's this hope in Christ. That's what fuels the way that we live. And it ought to be our mark from our first day of knowing him till the day we die. One of the most disappointing things to the pilgrims when they came here, you know, they came here to to experience what it would be to live uh, freely, to worship God freely, to have Uh, They had a vibrant faith, and they wanted it cultivated for them and their family. And you know what they discovered? They knew this theologically, but they they discovered it experientially, that our faith cannot be inherited. Just because we're walking with the Lord, that doesn't mean that the next generation will necessarily walk with the Lord. Within one generation after coming here, already the the original pilgrims began to notice how, how quickly the next generation began to wander away from the Lord and they became attracted to the same kind of nominal Christianity that they were running away from England. We need to be very careful That we don't allow ourselves to settle for nominal Christianity where we do things in the same old way, but we need to be people like these Thessalonian believers who were driven by a passion, a love, a faith in Christ, a hope that they found in Christ that affected everything that they did and it caused them to make radical decisions for their lives that, that only Christ could bring to pass. Second thing is this we must steer clear of the danger of believing our own hype. We must steer clear of the danger of believing our own hype. Um, So, okay, so we go out, we want to live radical Christian lives, right? We want to live, we want to allow our works to flow from our faith. We want to allow our labors to flow from our love. We want to live steadfastly because we know that one day we'll see the Lord. But you know what happens when we live that kind of life? Often people notice and uh, I love God's people. You know, it's great. God's people love to encourage. Don't you love when God's people encourage you in your faith and you walk with the Lord? Maybe there's something that we do and they notice it and they tell us. That's part of their spiritual gifting. That's a good thing. But sometimes there's a danger, and this is a great danger. This is an insidious way that Satan tries to upend Christians. He tries to get us to believe our own hype. That somehow uh, the things that are being done through us are of our own doing, because somehow we are extraordinary. The reality is is that if anything comes from our lives that are of any great spiritual note. God has to be the one who's behind it. That's why Paul gives thanks to God for the lives that these Thessalonian believers were living because Paul understood that they could not do that in their own right, but it's only by the impetus, by the, by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit working in and through them. Jesus says this in, uh, in, in uh, Matthew 6.1. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is something that we need to take to heart. Number three, we must embrace the instantaneous change that takes place the moment we come to Christ. We need not to think about it as something strange. We need to think about it as something that's normal, something that is good. We have, um, we have someone here here in our congregation who just, uh, I, I just think the world of. And... Um, And uh, probably a year and a half ago, if you were to talk to this person, this person would say, you know, they're just kind of, kind of just, just moving along in their Christian life. Probably the Christian life was here. Other parts of this person's life was there. And, and just, it was, it was just kind of there in the, in the background of their life. But about nine months ago, something radical happened. This person was alone. This person was, was just by themselves and all of a sudden the conviction came upon this person like he had never experienced before in an instant his life radically changed things he was doing he stopped doing things he wasn't doing in his relationship with the lord he started doing those things and 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 now this person is on fire for the lord living passionately for christ and the amazing thing is, is that this didn't happen during a worship service. This didn't happen during some other kind of meeting. This didn't happen uh, in, a, in a prayer meeting. This happened when this person was all by himself. That's the work of God. In an instant, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, God can take our hearts and he can, he can change the whole orientation of our lives so that we will never be the same. Have you ever experienced that? That's what it means to be born again. That's what happens when we are born again, as Jonathan Edwards, I think he said something like, it is, he says this, this doctrine of regeneration that we're talking about, the new birth, he said, it, it is a divine and supernatural light imparted to the soul. The moment we experience that divine and supernatural light, nothing is the same. We are different people. In fact, we should think about the old way of life that we lived as strange, not the new way of life that's found in Christ. You know, for um, Ben that we talked about earlier, Something was missing, right? You know, he said, um, I don't care what you say. All that born-again stuff is nonsense. And and you have to think to yourself that the reason why he said that was because he saw something missing. Since I'm his friend, maybe he saw something missing in me. Augustus St. Gaudens, he was a very famous sculptor. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him. He lived in the 1800s. He was American, but he went over to France. He had a French father, but he went over to France and uh, he learned sculpting. And he did many of the greatest uh, figures from the Civil War, uh, sculptures. But his first great assignment was doing a sculpture for Admiral David Farragut. Admiral David Farragut was a great admiral during the Civil War. And the city of New York wanted to have this monument for him. And so over several years, uh, St. Gaudens worked on this particular monument. Here's a picture of it. And you'll see on the left, there was his left leg. He wanted to paint Admiral Farragut as standing on a ship as the wind was blowing at him, looking into the battle ahead and going straight ahead. That's how he kind of wanted to paint this, or he wanted to sculpt this picture. But he had a really hard time with his left leg. And it could, have been, it could have been months, it might have been years. He was struggling with this left leg. What can I do? It just didn't look right. It just didn't look right. And he worked and he worked and worked. And then finally one day, he figured it out. And everything made sense. And the rest of the sculpture was history. And it still stands in Manhattan today. You know, when you think about Ben, something was missing. Something was missing when he thought about what it means to live a life where we have experienced a new birth. And maybe what was missing is seeing Christians who live that radical life around him. He knows Christians. God has called us to this radical life of faith, a radical life of love, a radical life of hope. And I believe that if we live this kind of life, the world will be forever changed as a result. May we be the people who do that in our interactions with others, in our lives with others. May we live that kind of radical life. Maybe someone here today, you might be uh, one of those who say, you know, I, I realize